We're back. Hello, everyone. I'm Hello. Liz. My name is Brace, and we are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky. And welcome to to Truanon. Hello. Hello. Interesting. Interesting delay on that one. Why? I like a dramatic pause. Comedic you do, effect. You do give it a little dramatic pause. It's important. Will she say it? Won't she say it? You gotta have rhythm, baby. Um, welcome to part two of our interview with William T. Volman. Yes, you made it this far. And if you didn't make it this far and you're like, what do you mean part two? Guess what? There's a part one, dummy. Go back. I, yeah, I cannot stress this enough. You should listen to part one before you listen to this. Yes. I, there is just, I, I've got nothing more to say on the subject. Listen to part one and read the essay that we linked there, which we'll also link here. But listen to part one first. It's a, it's yeah. a, a conversation. Listen, we're just not, it's, it would be a three and a half hour episode otherwise. So we're releasing yeah. it in two parts. It makes sense. We were on soft, cushiony chairs for many hours, drinking two types of whiskey, mm-hmm. talking with William T. Volman. You got to listen to part one. You're not going to understand part two. By the point in the interview that we start from here, Liz is thoroughly wasted. No, I'm not thoroughly wasted. She I think is, I'd only had the first type of whiskey at, the, at this point. She I is. I was not doing that. She was uh, doing what? I'm not even doing anything. I'm you just, just tried to do, you were just doing the like wavy wiggle. I'm doing the, because I'm, I'm, I have whatever disease makes you do that, which you're now making me reveal to everyone. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, Chauncey's saying I don't, I don't know which disease makes you do that. So That's it's a really bad one. That's called long COVID. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry for whatever one COVID that, people? <sighs> yeah. Or no, it was vaccine people. Vaccine. Yeah, vaccine. It was va- the, well. The yeah. vaccine. I'm trying to think of who was faking what. And I oh, can't remember. the vaccine. <laughs> they're, they're all like shaking in the bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That what was, happened yeah, to that? Are wild. they still doing that? Oh, they perished. Like most people who took it. <laughs> um, it's just they're all gone. It was uh, millions. <sighs> um, so at this point, there is a fourth person, fifth person in the room. Yeah, fifth. Fifth person. Yeah. Uh, which is an attorney named Mark Marin. Now, now <laughs> <laughs> I want to just say because we played it cool, obviously, in the studio, in Volman's studio. But when he kept saying that Mark Marin was coming by, we were all very confused. I was like, Mark Marin? Not, you know, in? obviously also because I had had some whiskey. So I was even more confused. Liz is like, Mark Marin? <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is crazy because I guess in uh, Mark Marin is always one of, he's the guy who asks, who's your guys? No, that's I guess, Bill Simmons. Okay. Well, if Bill Simmons, I mean, I would have to Maybe answer. Will T. Bowman is I one of my guys. kind of of a kind. Well, two. it was mercifully not Mark Marin, the uh, comedian podcaster, because no. that would that would not do to show us up on our own show. Uh, it was uh, an, ater- an attorney who was an incredible character. Incredible character. Fantastic tie. Oh, my God. God, great. The whole look great. was crazy. The whole look was great. He was like something um, out of a movie. He was, and his voice sounds like one. Um, but, he sounds like a very like calm lawyer that would have appeared in the like Ocean's Eleven universe somehow. Yeah, very neat, sort of like slightly almost buzz here. Not buzz, actually. It was just very short, but like, uh, you know, white hair, mustache. Mm. Um, the tie was like a silk 1940s wide tie. It was like hand painted, just gorgeous. Yeah. 
Absolutely it, gorgeous. Yeah. He had yeah. Joe Biden socks on. He was he was 80 years old and uh didn't William, look a day over 66. He really looked young, uh very tanned, very relaxed. William William Volman had met him over um I believe there was I believe I think it's mentioned maybe in the episode a little bit, but there was a woman who was living in Volman's lot who was getting uh kind of well she was camping there, but she was getting evicted by the the county and mm. uh and he stepped in and and helped. He's a Homeless, uh, I, I mostly I believe deals with homeless people, but you know, human rights lawyer in Sacramento who I knew about one of the cases he dealt with because it's the famous case of Nevada sending people from mental hospitals on buses to other states. Yeah. Um, but I think, class I think, action William, suit, yeah? uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was a big deal when it happened. Um, yeah. but, uh, I believe William, William Volman kind of just wanted him to come and maybe add some color or talk about homelessness a little bit i think he also just wanted to hang out with them seemed like they hung out a lot yeah um, he helped himself right to the whiskey yeah he was he knew where it was he knew where it was he was yeah it was, it yeah. was fantastic it was cool i mean so this is about what an hour and some change into our conversation this this other guy shows up and we're just rolling with the punches we're chilling. he leaves at some point too um and yeah we keep on so rolling. we keep on rolling um, but yeah, I, this is, uh, this is, I don't know what else, what else happened? Do we have anything more framing to do here? I don't know. We had a great time. We had a great time. Yeah. And it was, he was, uh, again, once again, I mean, he was, you know, they're like, never meet your heroes, but I'm like, I don't, I don't really know about his character or anything. I just like his books, but you know what? The guy was a fucking mensch. He was very, he was very so sweet. nice. He's very, very sweet. sweet. Um, very, very sweet. I, I, I think send we him do- a postcard. We do talk about it in this one, I think, but uh, in 2013, he wrote a book called Book of Dolores. Um, he, you know, he is, he's, he's, he's written about transgender people for a really long time. And I think for a period he, to, to know more about the experience, he decided to live as a transgender person. Uh, and we talk about that a little bit. We talk about um, drugs a lot. Uh mm-hmm. We talk about we talk about all kinds of shit, um, but that's if the Dolores that I believe is referenced in this episode would be a reference to that. Um, yeah, I uh, I want to lead us into this with reading my favorite Volman passage. I think that 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 I have that's all right with you guys. I'll probably stumble over my words a little bit because it's a little long and it's kind of the uh, well, it's not exactly written in in the most normal grammar. So this is from Whores for Gloria, which is my favorite book that he's written. Uh, and I'll, let me tell you this. When I read this passage, it's just about – it knocked my goddamn socks off. It comes kind of early in the book. Um, and it's a short book. It's my favorite book of his. I mean, if it's, it's, it's fantastic uh, really in every single way. I, I mean, I, I don't have the words to describe it really. Uh, but this passage in particular really stuck out with me uh, or to me rather. So it goes, when everything, everything about life makes you want to grin, and it just gets sunnier and funnier until after a while you can only see the teeth in the smiles, and then you feel, well, not on edge exactly, for the world has no edge, but as if you have always been over the edge, and the smiling and laughing is a sort of spastic reflex like crying or retching. Really, it's all the same. When you drink red wine in a cup and try to categorize the geometry of the gleam patterns you see on the liquid surface... And you may find, my friends, that you can almost do it. You agree with yourself upon the existence of a light shape like the outline of a hemisphere drawn in concave at the equator. But another sip, and it changes to a gleam ring all around the rim of the wine circle. And another, and it is reddish-black everywhere with the unsteady image of your face in it, 
your skin redder and your mouth blacker than the wine, and another, and you see white specks swimming in the cup. And they're not reflections at all, but bits of grease or rice or cereal, or maybe cheek cells that got washed out of your mouth. The age-old question, is the imperfection, the filth, in you or in the glass? But then your attention is diverted forever by the ugly purple stain around the edge of the cup where your lips have been. When everything is so confusing that you can never be sure whether or not your whore is a woman till she pulls her underpants down, when nothing is clear and whore chasing is a merry-go-round of death, if you don't catch a disease that will kill you, why, you will go around again, not because you want to die, but because until you do, everything remains unclear. When you get drunken crushes on women whose drunken mothers used to try to stab them, when the names of streets are like Nabokov's wearisome cleverness, when only the pretty shapes of women have integrity, and when you close your eyes still see them leaning and crossing their legs and milking their tits at you, then you may on occasion, like Jimmy, find yourself looking down a long black block, down the tunnels of infinity to a street lamp, a corner, and a woman's waiting silhouette. Or else, like Jimmy, you may have another drink. All right. So without further ado, here's the second part of our interview with William T. Volman. That's right. And what is that? I was hoping you could tell me. Well, actually, Maybe I was going to ask no. you. Yeah, I don't know. Right. You guys would know, not me. That's right. Well, what I, is the best way to smoke crack? Well, you know, of course, I, I, you know, I, I've never done anything illegal, and I'm also a virgin. But if I had to guess, I would say the best way would be. Um, to stop after the first hit of the night and enjoy it. The second one's <laughs> never going to be as good. <laughs> I will say, with crack, it's one of the few things that I've tried in life that I'm like, I get it now. Because right. you see a crackhead and you walk around when you're young and you're like, how could you so slavishly devote yourself to something that seems so stupid? I mean, there's right. a name for a crackhead. It doesn't, yeah. you know, it's, and then you try it, and you're like, I get it. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it builds empathy, I think, yeah. to try it once. Not I, that our listeners should, but I, I think so, yeah. And uh, mm. it definitely builds empathy to be addicted to the other kind of crack, which I am. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But it all, it all works out, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, Mark, um, I got to see him um, working on this horrible patient dumping case in Nevada. And it ended up being part of a, of a chapter of this novel, which deals with homelessness. Um, these, these people um, uh, were just taken by the facility and given one-way Greyhound tickets yeah. with just a little bit of medication and not even any water. And um, uh, Mark litigated it, and he hunted the plaintiffs down and won, and then they keep slashing away. Yeah, um, but he never gets discouraged. Fifteen, fifteen hundred people were bussed out of uh, Las Vegas, all over the country. Yes, one way tickets, uh, and um, we got each one of them 
because it was certified as a class, $250,000 from a jury that was furious. And then got up to the seven compassionate Supreme Court justices of mm -hmm. Nevada who found some reason to say that there was a basic error and that the hospital was could not be responsible if they weren't even named in the complaint. So it's just <laughs> sort of kind of craziness. But it's yeah. it's back up to the Supreme Court, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Mm. This time you've named the hospital. Yes. Yeah. I was, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I remember being like, uh, told because I knew like kind of like homeless transient kids in, in on Hate Street, uh, like sort of street kids. Oh yeah. And the big thing was that, like San Francisco would buy you a one way bus ticket yeah. uh, to you know some location to get you out of there. And I remember when the Nevada story broke because that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, there was all these rumors that hospitals and jails in in the Bay Area and all throughout California and probably throughout the country were doing the same thing that there was just like these buses of people. Of, of crazy people basically being sent like hither and thither. Well, it's one thing to do it voluntarily. You yeah. Know, to ask, is there some place you'd like to go? It's a totally different uh, when you're drugged, you're not consenting, you still need care. Yeah. And then you're sent away. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, you should be picking up Bill more than me. And my voice is a little weakened. I've, you've got a deep, you've got a crazy voice. I had an intruder in, in my home yesterday morning and I screamed at him and then went outside and screamed at passersby to call 911. Uh -huh. And as a result, <clears throat> I've lost a lot of uh, volume. Yeah. What happened in your house? Well, uh, he, I caught him at the time that he had first uh, entered. So all he managed to get on the way out was my wife's cell phone and her credit card, which enabled us to track him. Oh, yeah. And then he was apprehended yeah, two blocks away. A happy story. Uh, and, and we were reunited with the cell phone <laughs> and the credit card. Mm. Yeah. Um, what did the guy do when you saw him? Did he you know what he did? It was very strange. Uh, he was a tall guy. He just put his, when I started screaming, get out of my house, he just put his finger to his lips <laughs> and to try to shush me. That's a brilliant tactic, actually. She's like, hey, you're being too loud, don't, don't. Yeah, but the cops, since I know this issue, deal, you're dealing largely with homeless issues. The cops, when they responded, said, was he homeless? Was he a homeless man? Well, was it in your home? They were hoping <laughs> so, huh? Yeah, yeah, they were hoping, because they want to just track, check that off. As, right. Another another problem with the homeless community. Yeah, that's right. So um, the two of you met. Um, yeah, because because, because Mississippi got you know kicked off by the police, and I didn't know where to turn. And Mark got the city off my back, and then I started realizing um, some of the amazing things that he's done with the resources I have. All I can do is. You know, as I was saying, try to make a few people seen or give them a little something. But uh, Mark has made a difference for a lot of people. Like the tent city over there, um, they probably only let it happen because of the pandemic. And the neighbors were all against it. And now they're okay with it. And he's having some tiny homes built farther down this block, you know. So he's the greatest. Well, uh, Bill is very modest. I mean, his campaign in 
in support of poor people and homeless people goes well beyond my poor efforts. No, uh, yeah. And they're continuing. You know, he he sees the beauty in in everybody. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's right. Well. Um, yeah, we should have a big session in the Las Vegas tunnels one of these days. <laughs> oh, yeah, at the moment. Yeah. I think I saw a documentary about that when I was a kid, about some kind of mole. Well, not the mole. She says, swears she saw a mole man by, uh, yeah. what, Church and Market? Yeah, Church and Market. Like a real tunnels. mole man, not like a like a homeless guy. Like oh, really? a, a Every half... time I mention this on the podcast, people make fun of me, so but, I don't want to okay. get too deep into it. Good thinking, but you can tell <laughs> us. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I saw a documentary about people who lived in tunnels when I was a kid. That like... What are the, La- you've been to the Las Vegas tunnels? Yes, yeah, and there's a, um, there's a chapter about it in my novel. I mean, it's about a father and son. And the father is uh, in the CIA. He was working on East Germany till the Cold War ended, and then they put him in charge of Iraq. And so uh, he's basically, you know, from an individual point of view, a decent person. And he's, you know, involved in doing these unpleasant things. He's just an analyst, but still he's helping, you know, them kill people. and. Um, and his son is not very smart, but has a really, you know, wise heart. And so the, the son can't stand uh, the father after Abu Ghraib. Mm. And so he travels around trying to get straight, as Confucius says. Mm. And so he, to him, that means being homeless. And so he ends up spending some time in those tunnels, you know, with, with his homeless girlfriend. And I've been in the tunnels a few times in there. They're really interesting, yeah. How um, so? Well, um, let's see, Mark. That time that you came uh, with Ron and so forth, was that woman there, there was a woman who had been blinded by her boyfriend, and then she had a new boyfriend, and she'd been in the tunnel with him for, I think, six or seven years. They had a dog, the mattress, and she said she felt so safe there that she could hear really well, and there were no real obstacles on the walls of the tunnel. And so she felt that this was her place that she did not want to leave. Mm. You know, um, there was a huge flash flood there recently. um, And uh, one of my friends just went in there. He said he didn't recognize anybody. So, and they did stay there for a long time. Maybe they got, some of them got drowned or they had to move. Yeah, know. they do drown because although there are these escape hatches, they have metal grates over them mm. and they're locked. So you can imagine sort of coming up to the surface, thinking you're escaping and then just being watching confined. The, watching the water rise. It's up horrifying. Good horrifying. God. It's like, yeah, it's like being yeah. on a sinking this, ship. Yeah. They're locked from the outside. They're, yeah, they're yeah. locked from the yeah. surface. Yeah. yeah. And, um, um, and they're, they're really, really strange, you know, because they're, they're, how wide would you say they are? Like maybe seven feet wide? Or, oh, the tunnels themselves? Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe seven, six, eight, yeah. you know, in that neighborhood, yeah. Mm. So everyone who camps is in a line. <clears throat> right. And oh, you have yeah. to go past yeah, them to the dark. Them. Yeah. And the deeper you go, the darker it gets. And, and, and the more theoretically, sticks, the yeah. more dangerous yeah. it gets. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. It, uh, a lot of interesting graffiti there. I'm sure. Um, and uh, 
Usually it'll be like four or five tunnels in a row, so they can use one tunnel just as the latrine. Yeah. Okay. I would. I would. The issue of sanitation would be a little difficult there. Yeah. There's there's tunnels under Sacramento too, right? That's when I was a kid. That's like everybody would always like kind of like talk about. There was like a hidden city Are you from underneath. Sacramento? It. No, from the Bay. But ah, uh, yeah. I came up here. Well, there there's the original street level. Yeah. And that's what became the tunnels because they decided to elevate the city to minimize the flood hazard. Uh, so they did that. So the first floors became just tunnels and the basements, of course, that existed are still still around and they have tours. You can take tours, not quite as elaborate as the ones beneath uh, Paris, but uh, interesting I, nonetheless. I, yeah. I ended up in some catacombs underneath Odessa a long time ago. Oh, really? Yeah, and oh. they're... 1,500 kilometers if you if you set them in a really? line straight. Wow. In the Ukraine? In Ukraine, yeah. And uh, we went out. It's illegal to go in them except for a very small part. But uh, I think it was a friend of a friend took me out, like through the kind of rock and roll people, took me out to the country. And we went in just the side of a hill. And from that, like, I mean, this was like, this is equivalent to like going to maybe San Rafael and then being able to walk to downtown San Francisco without reaching the surface. I mean, it's really something. There was all this Baptist minor graffiti because it was Russian Baptists that were working the limestone cavern. It's really something. Mm. How many uh, years did it take? I think it was... Centuries, I, probably. Yeah. I, no, no, because it was... I mean, Odessa is a fit, relatively young city because it was built by, I yeah. think, Catherine the Great. Uh, That's such a long distance. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. I mean, it's... yeah. Huh. It's, was it sort of militarily... Uh, Dictated during no during the so during the Second World War there was a group of uh, yeah. it was about I think there was about twenty NKVD people who were underneath there and they ended up having this sort of uh, battle between the two groups of one was from Moscow one was from Odessa oh really and ended up killing each other except for uh, one uh, one final survivor who or two final survivors uh, one of whom shoots the other and then goes and lives on the surface. Until the 1970s, when they found out that the guy he claims to have shot was actually living in Paris, which was completely unexplained. Wow, that's yeah. strange. Um, I've always wanted to go to <clears throat> Odessa ever since I read the stories of Isaac Bob. Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 Um, and is Odessa getting hammered now? I don't think so. I think there was briefly at some point, but I think that it's it's sort of, I think the port didn't do well. But... In general, the city, it's all limestone. But yeah, I'm surprised you've never been there. No, I would like to. Um, when I, uh, I saw my first autopsy, it was in the San Francisco coroner's office. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this man and woman were cutting open this decomposed corpse's head. And the woman was saying, oh, yeah, no. I'm from Odessa, and it's really beautiful there, and do you want to go out to the movies tonight? And then they were drinking coffee out of mugs with, with their gloves, with the you know, dripping blood. Yeah. So that was a nice, a nice thing to associate with That's what you associate with Odessa? With Odessa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what other tunnels have you been in? What other tunnels? Well, um, the Paris catacombs. Yeah. Um, and then have any of you been to Haver, Montana? No. no. They have this extensive 19th century city that they actually keep up. So, you know, right next to the brothel with all the blankets, um, hanging over cots, there's the dentist chair. And 
uh, and you control the drilling and your amount of pain, you're, you're on a bicycle that's drilling into your teeth. Oh, it just all geez, kinds of that's a, yeah. That sounds horrible. How I think Calexico. Well, in Mexicali, for oh, sure. Mexicali. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wrote about that in Imperial. Mm. There are all these tunnels where the, the uh, illegal Chinese immigrants hid, and I found a bunch of letters in Cantonese and had some of those translated. It was very interesting. What, what do the letters say? Uh, things like, um, oh, you know, this is your wife, and, you know, my, our, my in-laws are being really mean to me, and we don't have enough money for rice, and when are you going to send us some money, or please can I come be with you? You know, so I guess really, this, really yeah. heart-rending things. Do you ever go down in the coal mines? Because that's um, kind of like tunnels. That's right. Uh, you know, I've never been in a coal mine, and I tried and tried. Mm. In West Virginia, they kept checking me out, saying, no, you can't go. And in Bangladesh, I was sure I could get to go to this coal mine. Um, there was this big shot uh, who arranged the literary festival who brought me over there. So he worked it out for me. And on this one day, they would be up there. Uh, so I, had, I got myself driven up there. And that one day, they just happened to have a conference in Dhaka. And they said they would be back as soon as I left. Huh. So, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was in a coal mine in Tianjin. Oh, you uh, were? China. And what was yeah. it like, Mark? Well, it's, it, was, it was scary because you go down uh, in a shaft and then mm. you take on these laterals. And the laterals, you, you can't stand up or anything, but they have these vehicles where you have to basically lie down. I've seen those, yeah. yeah. And you're lying down, and the, the, the ceiling of the, of the shaft, or whatever they call it, is just inches above your head. It's very claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, even though you're not chipping away at the, at the face or anything, when you come out, you're absolutely covered yeah. in soot. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. I went in one when I was a kid. I was like... Six, I was, I'm like five or six years old, and this was in England. And my mom told me that I, because I was so tiny, I could stand up, you know. And I just like didn't know any better, so I'm just like, like marching along. And my mom's like, you gotta like, you know, hang back because you don't know how narrow it's gonna get. And I don't really remember much, but she just said that I, you know, you're a kid, you're so fearless, you know, even going down. Now I'm afraid of heights, and I feel like somehow going down is like the reverse afraid of heights but it's like the same it's like you know you're going down below but it's still somehow related to my fear of yeah, heights or something yeah, if that I makes sense i mean i think fear it's just depth. A, yeah depth, fear of depth, depth for in sure some way. Yeah. but back then yeah and i came out of it and i was just covered in soot i bet huh? yeah yeah, yeah I, i've i've tried to except for the catacombs i think i've avoided or the odessa catacombs i think i've avoided tunnels most of my life, I mean, you know, tunnels I've been through, but, you know, really underground. I guess I've been in a few caves here and there, right, but that's, yeah. you know. Sometimes you have to crawl through caves and so forth, yeah. Yeah. But, but cave and tunnel are two different things, though. So. Yeah, yeah, a yeah, tunnel sure. is, you know, it's, you're going to San Francisco, you know, you're good. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, but they're, they're sort of fascinating. I've always was, I mean... With the Vietnam War, the the concept of the tunnel rat. Oh, at Coochie? Yeah, it's just it's always, yeah. it's like a most terrifying thing to me. My friend know? has seen them. Have you ever been there, Mark? Those to Vietnam, no. Oh, well, yeah, these tunnels in the Iron Triangle, they were just incredible. 
I've seen the maps of them well, and how you? and all of the different kind of depths that they They're would like reach veins. and the they are like veins and how they were like this is the one for the conference room and this is the one. Yeah, for <laughs> you think those Hamas tunnels are like that in Gaza? I think they're probably. I think that they're probably students of history, so I think that some of right. them are probably mapped out similarly. Yeah. yeah. Well, well and you also, know, in, in Cappadocia, oh, Turkey. Yeah. Uh, they have whole cities. I mean, right near Cappadocia, they have cities that were created underground. Uh, and people lived there for years, and they had they had donkeys. They had they had uh, they grew vegetables underground, and why uh, it was strategic. It was defensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I visited those. Those are pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting. A uh, donkey underground yeah, is just yeah. it seems uh, like it'd be a fluent experience for sure. Have any of you ever heard of the underground gardens of Fresno? No. no. Uh, you've been there, right, Mark? No, oh, but I sounds tried. Sounds like a chapbook of poetry you'd see somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. Well, there was this guy named Baldessare who uh, came over in 1901 to help dig the New York subway. And back then it was all pick and shovel. Yeah. So he wanted to have a fruit ranch uh, just a little south of here in Fresno. And it was really hot and the ground was all hard pan. So he took his pick and... and for the rest of his life, he kept digging. And uh, they called him the Mole Man of Fresno. And people would come over, you know, to see him on Sunday. He'd give all the ladies a glass of champagne and give all their husbands a shovel. And, uh, like, uh, it's all, like, these crazy trees. He's grafted different fruits on that they're still alive. And it's way underground in this inverted pyramid. So it's always cool. I went there when it was 110 degrees, and down there, you know, it was like 60 degrees with this constant draft coming up. Hmm. Um, hmm. I bet that's how people are going to have to build in the next century. It's going to be like that. With guards at the entrances. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And bars on the on the tops. No? Yeah, well, we, we know a guy who wrote a book about uh, all of the sort of bunkers that rich people were building in New Zealand. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and it's, I think there is a like, I guess it's kind of understandable impulse to where if you have like essentially infinite money, you would sort of set that up for you. Like the Swiss do this too. Switzerland has like, is like covered in bunkers and like right. these sort of like underground redoubts. Yeah. Um, my mm. parents retired there. And at that time, uh, the law was that every adult male has to have yeah. um, a bomb shelter. Oh, I thought it was a rifle. Well, um, since he was not a citizen, he yeah. didn't have to have the rifle, but his bomb shelter was a great wine cellar, for, so it worked out. That's nice. Yeah. Sort of moving back to the sort of the subject of homelessness, um, and I guess the subject of also like unorthodox places to live, like bomb shelters or in caverns and things like that. Uh, you know, you got you were you were saying how you guys met because you or I don't know if you met because of this, but you have a uh, sort of like a safe sleeping site nearby, um, and that has been in San Francisco. I was able to witness, able to witness. I did witness and participated in during COVID, especially there was this sort of um, push for both safe sleeping sites and to get people into hotel rooms. Um, 
but now, you know, that things, you know, it's been a few years, things have kind of died down from that. There's this like this battle kind of beginning again. Yeah. Has the nature of homelessness changed in the past you know, 20 years? Because the way that people talk about it, it would seem that it had. I don't, I don't really think it has. Um, but, uh, but it's become this like huge, huge issue. In fact, like the overriding issue for a lot of people. Well, just in in some kind of Marxist terminology, yeah. there's the quantitative change and ultimately qualitative change. Uh-huh. I mean, isn't that what you're seeing? You know, a few homeless people on the streets in the 50s, more in the 60s, you know, like they're noticeable in the 70s. By the 90s, you start to think, why are they here? What can we do about it? And then you get into our our century and we realize that this is indicative of something major, mm-hmm. something organic in our society. And then you say, well, who has an interest in addressing it? The fact is, no one does. Only the victims, only the people who are discarded because they are useless. They're not necessary for labor and they're not productive and we haven't prioritized their survival. So they're on their own. And when they're on their own, they're living in, in the spaces that they can locate and occupy. And it's, it's, it's an illness. It's a, to me, it's an indication of society's uh, infection. Infection I was and, say and rot. sickness, disease. Yeah. And whether we're gonna be able to address that in any constructive way uh, still remains to be seen. I myself am hopeful that with the proliferation of numbers on the streets, obviously, uh, they will require and demand some kind of attention. Uh, The Supreme Court, unfortunately, is going to get to consider whether the most recent judicial salve uh, on on the homeless situation, that is, staying the hand of municipalities to criminalize homelessness until they create spaces where homeless people can be legally, uh, will be uh, that salve will be uh, eradicated. I so I think we're going to be into some uh, uncharted waters, and whether we have violent reaction or not still remains to be seen. Unfortunately, homeless people tend to inoculate themselves against their own uh, situations with drugs and alcohol, and then they they get acclimated to, to it, and they don't have that organizational drive to really overturn the, 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 the system. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've <clears throat> seen. Um, one of the... Um, uh, the the groups that I really admire um, was called Share, and it, it's a, a group up in Seattle, and they have um, I've slept in a couple of these uh, tent cities there to see what it's like, and uh, they're really really good. You know, the neighbors are at first resistant, mm-hmm. and then they start liking it because everyone has a job. You have to go and pick up trash mm-hmm. or do this or do that, but What's really sad is you go to these compulsory um, weekly meetings and some organizers say, okay, 
who wants to be in charge of the kitchen this week? And no one says anything. And the <laughs> organizer says, okay, I'm nominating Jane Doe. Will everyone please give Jane Doe, you know, a, a hand? And it's, it's, um, it's vanguardist, you know, and it's, it's very, very hollow, but it has to be done, you know? But you just think, what, did it, what would it take for these people to actually um, get together? Uh, there would be strength in numbers. You know, um, those guys in Reno, for instance, they all just saw each other as competitors. And right. that's one reason I'm so impressed um, with Mark's tent city across the street. You know, Seven is such a good leader. He keeps order and, uh, you know, he's also benevolent. And so there aren't very many problems there, even though all those people would ordinarily be, you know, inside each other's tents, stealing things or doing, you know, or pooping on the ground there or whatever. Um, but it's really hard to make people who have been infantilized by homelessness, you know, be mature enough to actually act on their own collective behalf. I mean, yeah. well, what, would, what do you think, Mark, is the, the best way for individuals to help <clears throat> the homeless? Oh, uh, you mean non-homeless individuals to help yes. them? Yeah. Give them a give them a place to live. I mean, include them in your own household. Uh, try it. It turns out it's actually beneficial if you if you take a person who hasn't just been just gone over the edge. If you just take a person and say, "Look, we got a spare bedroom," uh, and you can you can occupy it, and all you have to do is, and then you just identify a few things like take out the trash and maybe clean up after yourself and a few things, pretty soon they're, they're essential elements of your household. Uh, now, very few people do that, but that's a way for, uh, to siphon off a, a group of, uh, of homeless folks. Otherwise, I think paying them to do some work around the place. I mean, I, you know, I look around and see all the fruit that's hanging on the trees, it's not harvested. All the berries that aren't picked. And think all they have to do is organize brigades of homeless people to go harvest. And then commercial kitchens and all that. So there are lots of things that can be done. Uh, but it does require some organization. It's become like San Francisco more so than Sacramento, but it's become such a kind of locus for this conversation nationally it's become almost like a symbol of you know have you have you noticed that since i think oh sure i feel like since covid yeah i was in uh raleigh yeah. uh north carolina um for my book about the cia because my cia guy is born near there mm. and so where near there um just a little bit north uh you know the area a little bit yeah oh okay um well anyway um people were coming up to me and saying oh so so you're from San Francisco. It's true, right? What they say in the news. Yeah. It's like mm -hmm. Sharia law there, and you'll get your throat cut if you walk past it's the like, homeless it's tent. Like a, yeah. it's London like a, reads Sharia law. It's like a mild Sharia, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. I said it wasn't quite that bad. No, yeah, yeah it's not full. Yeah. You want another shot, Mark? Uh, sure. Okay, and... Yeah,
Yeah, San Francisco is like it's weird because I see it like nationally, and well, like I'll see people recognize people whose names I know uh, being talked about on like Fox News and things like that. And, you know, they'll they'll send sort of ABC in and like war reporter mode where they're <laughs> yeah, like, totally. you know, we're we're like like a we're lady in like Street. a full <laughs> flak jacket and like a vest. Or excuse me, like a helmet, like yeah, on Sixth Street or like on Turk and Taylor. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, yeah, awfully dangerous though. I will say though, I mean, we did a show, you know, whenever it was last year, last like November, almost, almost a year yeah, ago, yeah. and we stayed at um, what is it called? The Phoenix Hotel. Yeah, where classic. I've been twice banned, and now. Oh really? Oh, yeah, yeah, we stayed there. We did a show at Great American, which was cool. Oh wow. Um, but you know, I mean, I grew up in San Francisco. I grew up in Glen Park. I, you know, lived there for. What feels like a billion years, <laughs> but I mean, it was maybe the worst I've seen it ever in my life. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, the what? tenderloin and that the whole area, and it felt very much like the city was just sort of putting its hands up, almost in protest, and saying like, "Well, we're just not going to do anything." Right. When I think of the the future of homelessness in America, I think of Colombia, because mm-hmm. um, that's where you see. Homeless everywhere, and um, they can't. There's so many that they can't survive by being these somewhat patient and submissive panhandlers you have here. So it's very common to be in a restaurant, and some homeless guy just comes in and starts grabbing food from people's plates and eating it. And you know, the owner like hides, and mm. they, people just don't dare do anything. Or you might be mm. on a street, and there's a a kid has stretched a little piece of string across the road. And so you had better stop and give that kid some pesos. If not, there's going to be somebody waiting around the, the bend. And you think that's how it's going to have to be. Yeah, I always think about it like there's, I mean, especially seeing when I was living in L.A., like seeing like the tent cities kind of underneath the uh, like overpasses, but like on those little, you know, the hills kind of leading up. Oh, yeah. Um and I was like, wow, if we had like looser building codes, th- there would just be favelas all over all over the uh the sides of of hills and things like that. It just it seems like it's weird. It does seem like there's a certain the only real solutions I see proffered by like politicians essentially amount to camps, like to like, you know, we we'll, we'll take it around. I think there was like one where they were talking about putting people on Angel Island, which I think had some bad connotations. Uh and so they they didn't end up doing it. Mark, how many uh, people are you going to put on your lot in those tiny homes? Well, those are studio apartments, uh, and only eight. But then another tw- we're going to do another twenty-two units. Oh, really? So we'll have thirty, uh, and that they're they're going to be able to occupy those apartments at uh, the voucher level. There, mm. there's a Section Eight, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, program that that will subsidize people's rent uh, and the problem is that people don't usually have the increment above the subsidization level which will allow them to actually occupy a place but we're going to maintain the rent at the level so that they don't have any additional obligation uh yeah that's so it's so just great. to prove that it can be done because yeah. we're we're building these at the cost of about one hundred sixty thousand dollars a piece which is a third of what Contractors are, yeah, are building uh, studios studios for now. Um, 
Yeah, but you know, there are societies where there isn't homelessness. And I mean, it's interesting. I just came back from Algeria. You don't see homeless people in Algeria. You, but what you see is a very oppressive Muslim uh, system. And uh, they, I say oppressive from our perspective, they take care of, of, them, of their, their families, but it's within the, the dictates of the Quran. So you have to pretty much be a believer, or at least... Uh, so if someone's a kafir in the family, you don't have to take care of him, huh? Right, right. I mean, they're just ousted. Maybe uh, they, go some, they go to Morocco. Uh, yeah, interesting. And we, you know, we we value freedom, but what freedom gives us is uh, is the, uh, the 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 obvious poverty. Well, I mean, Stalin had a quote about I think it was about freedom of speech, but like you know what what use is freedom of speech to a guy living under a bridge? Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah, that's right. Didn't Lenin say? Uh, Maybe it was Yeah, rich and poor equally oh. have the, the right to sleep under bridges, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah what, a, what a great thing. Um, yeah. Well, uh, what do you think um, any of us can do <clears throat> or should do uh, to help our brothers and sisters? I don't know. I mean, I think that, I mean, that's such a big question. I think that you always run up to this problem of, well, what can an individual affect versus what could maybe be done collectively, right? Because obviously much more can be done collectively. I think that everyone, just sheer mathematics would prove that (laughs) beside any other sort of political philosophy. Um, And I think that you kind of run in, it. you know, I think it's easy to kind of run into so many daily frustrations on the individual level, right? trying to sort of affect these things. But at the same time, that can easily excuse or be used as an excuse to not do anything on the individual level. Does that make sense? Sure. And so I feel like there's this constant tension. At least I feel that. Maybe that feeds into some of the guilt that you talk about, that you write about, you know, of like, well, what can I do? Maybe I can't do anything, but then that'll mean that I won't do anything. But there's got to be something I can do. You know, and so you're always kind of caught in this little... Right. Um, triangle, maybe. You know, um, um, the great Soviet encyclopedia had a definition of altruism, which I, I always hated it, but I wonder if it's true. Mm. Uh, it was defined as uh, a hypocritical mask to hide the uh, antagonism of class relations. And mm. I like to think that, like... That's pretty good, yeah, I guess. When I'm buying somebody a beer... It's not that I'm appeasing him so he's not going to steal my unjustly earned property. But, you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, you have that line in the essay, right, where you say, oh, my gosh, I, now I've had this whiskey. I can't think of it. I have to pull up my notes. Well, just have another whiskey. Yeah, yeah. then it, yeah. you, you <laughs> eventually circle back to where you started from, is yeah. from my experience. Isn't that a brilliant piece, The Four Men? You, yeah. It's, you, do you, have you read his stuff before meeting him? Read Bill's stuff before yeah. Medium? No. No. No, we met uh, like 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, uh, let's see. It must have been like, what, about 2007, 2008, when, when they yeah, tore down Mississippi's right. house? Yeah. Yeah. And, I still feel sad. No, but we had an instant connection, uh, in part because Bill was wearing a T-shirt 
That's a Deep Springs College. Uh, you uh, went to Deep Springs. He went to Deep Springs. I know, but I was saying, did you? The, you said no, connections. No, but I. Tell you right. I. I. I'm an, in a sister institution. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, same. Same Nunnian founder. That is right. Lucian right. Lucius Nunn. Yeah, what a great name. Yeah. Whose twin brother was Lucius Lucian Nunn. Yeah. Yeah. But we Deep Springers can keep them straight sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, that's right. Creative parents. Yeah. And uh, uh, Marcus uh, has taught me a lot. I remember <clears throat> I kept saying, why don't I just talk to the, the mayor, you know, and get him to, to just do something useful with this parking lot for the homeless. So Mark said, go ahead, you know, you'll see how it'll <laughs> yeah, turn out. Yeah, let's yeah, talk to the yeah. mayor. So I did, and oh, Bill, Thank you for being part of the solution. That yeah. I never heard from. Of course yeah. not. Yeah. yeah, and then sounds like London Breed. Yeah, you like that. Yeah, yeah. and then um, we have a city councilwoman here. Mark knows, so he talked to her, and she showed up with these guys. You know, it's like okay, we can put various tiny homes in here, and one of them turned to me and he said, "Well, but why? I mean." Mr. Ballman, what do you get out of this? Like, he couldn't imagine that it was just because I cared. I said, oh, swimsuit calendars of homeless women, sir. And he, there was a long silence. Maybe that's why I, they wouldn't put any houses in there. <laughs> well, it's funny yeah. because in a, yeah. it seems like in a lot of your, your earlier stuff, you know, it's like you as sort of like an observer and you're giving people money. And, and, you know, things like that, mostly just so they'll talk to you in the first place. Right. Uh, but it's like, it feels like, I don't know, maybe in the early 2000s, this, I mean, I guess, well, I don't know, because of Afghanistan stuff, which I want to talk about a little bit. But uh, you kind of feel like you actually have to do more. Has, like, that been building in you this whole time? Well, as I matured, um, I became a little less shy, and uh, I became a little bit more aware of what I could do and what I should do, but what really gave me confidence um, was being a parent. When Lisa was born, I instantly knew the right and the wrong, what things to do for her. I remember um, when she was about 10 minutes old, these medical students took her to check her reflexes, you know, and they were sticking pins into her and she was crying. And it was all I could do not to strangle them, you know? <laughs> and. Um, and there's something about being a parent. Suddenly, you look at uh, children of all ages that might even be older than you, and you think, oh, I know how it is. As a parent, I know what this person needs. Mm. And uh, um, it really made me a better and stronger and more confident person when I was a parent. Well, have you guys read or looked at Shadows of Love, Shadows of Loneliness? Not yet, no. It, no, didn't, it came out amazing. like two weeks ago, right? It's amazing. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing collection. But he talks a lot about uh, that, 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 that wonderment of what can you do, what should you do. You see the world around you and what is your responsibility, projecting it, explaining it, mm. uh, and, and project, you know, hoping that, that that has some effect on the viewer. Uh, and and on Bill himself, I mean, I think that you you show that the that you are transformed yourself by just struggling with what is the purpose of of the the photographs and the art for sure. And you know, Mark, I was telling them that 
uh, one of the, the first times I came down after my accident um, and uh, Seven hugged me and I felt like it was worth getting my back broken. You know, it really made me feel so proud, you know? Well, so. yeah. But these things aren't one-to-one. It's not like you think because you got your back broken, then you get the hug, right? No, but on, on the other hand, like I remember when I was hit by the car, my bicycle broke my pelvis, and at first I thought, oh, no, all the things I have to do, and I couldn't do them, mm-hmm. and they didn't matter. And instead, there I was in my Percocet glory days, <laughs> blibber-blabbering with all my friends who I realized actually loved me and care about me. And it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> so, so Mark. Well, what can we do? I mean, this is a, this is a good question. What do, what do our efforts uh, affect? And I and I keep coming back to that, that image of the little girl, napalm on her back, oh, running yeah. naked oh, down yeah. the street in in Vietnam. In Vietnam. Yeah. And you know, it does have a tremendous effect. Uh, you know, whether we'll see similar uh, reactions. When the the pictures of devastation in in Gaza uh, appear or not remains to be seen, but um, um, well, as far as homelessness here is concerned, Mark, um, you were telling me that more and more you're thinking about trying to help the homeless as a class. Well, um, I- it's it's so difficult here. Um, Mark was the one who told me. You're not allowed to sleep in your own backyard in Sacramento for more than one night. You aren't? No. Right, even if you own the property. How is that a law? Good You'd question. think that American prop. I mean, nothing America loves more than property rights. I thought that was the most sacred thing in the You'd world. You think is that your you property. could do whatever you want on your property? I know, but the, the fear is that if you are allowed to sleep in your own property, then you can have your guests sleeping in your own property too. Mm. And what if they were, uh, God know, forbid, homeless? But what if you start a website where you can monetize that? Yes, yeah. Could you then get around some of those? That's right. Homeless <laughs> business. Yeah, yeah, then yeah. it's business, right? And then right. it's all fair game. Yeah, that's right. You might have more leeway as yeah. a business, yeah. Um, but Marcus tried and tried, like um, so many people, you know, when they're arrested for sleeping and breaking that ordinance, the police take their stuff and throw it away. Sweet, yeah. Yeah, and kick them back out into the rain without a tent and sleeping yeah. bag. And medication often. I mean, San Francisco, that's a big thing that happens. Take it they, all. They'll take everything. Yeah, well, you know, we can, we cover damages for lost property taken without, as they say, due process. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the cities are prepared to pay. They would rather just pay people for the property they take and just keep taking it. Yeah, because they feel that the people themselves will be driven off. That's, that's, it's an exclusion issue. They, they want to get rid of them and discourage them from, from being at all. Right, yeah. Um, before um, before um, Mark <clears throat> helped me out and, and got seven for me, and after uh, Mississippi was kicked off, there were some years when I would just tell anyone, you're welcome to stay. And so often I'd come and, you know, there'd be a police car and these guys, you know, officers saying, oh, you have to go. I'd say, you know, oh, excuse me, officer, I'm the property owner. Step away, step away, you know. Mm -hmm. And then um, um, sometimes the police would honor a note that I left. Oh, this person has the right to stay. Other times they'd say, nope, we don't care. Um, It's so awful. Mm -hmm. 
it's a sweet thing to nurse once a whiskey. Let's That's talk nice. about the CIA book real quick. Okay. I, I heard. No, Liz, you ask. You. I, I was. No, a, I'm just curious because you know we come we came in and we were looking at your shelves and then I saw this whole section that's. You know, CIA, 9-11, Iraq, and everything in between. Oh, yeah. Lots of biographies of Bush, it looks like. Yeah. And I, I just inferred that maybe this was part of some of the research that for your next novel? Well. Um, Is that the rumor? Yeah. Well, um, it would have been my present novel until Viking fired me. Okay. So, so now... Over fonts. Yeah, that's right. Was is, that... You, you really got fired over fonts? Fonts plus length. Um, and that's a, the book yeah. originally, I've been able to get a really long word count into the contract, but then they, they didn't want to honor it. And um, nowadays, I guess, um, fonts are just a utility. Just like if people stream music, that I'll never do it. That's why I just stay on... CDs. What yeah. do I care? Mm. Um, but yeah, it all gets monetized. It's all built. Oh, I you know, see. like if we use this new century school book font, it's going to cost us an extra two cents per copy. We can't have that. Because in, uh, in Europe Central, you use a lot of fonts. Yeah. My, uh, my designer, uh, Carla, was still alive. And I remember going to Berlin and getting um, newspapers from the flea market. Like, here's a World War I paper with this um, notice printed in the fracture font. Your son is gefallen. Your son has just been killed, you know, in battle. And so Carla could drop that right in. And then, um, you know, she had a nice um, SS font because um, they actually had um, lightning bolt runes on the typewriter. It, they did, yeah. yeah. And only for SS would you use it. Yeah. Mm. Anyway fascinating stuff but those days are gone um so but um well when i between the gulf wars mm -hmm. was the first time i went to iraq mm -hmm. and i went for saddam's birthday <laughs> which was Sorry. the same date as my father's but okay. my poor dad his birthday only lasted one day and i guess Saddam must have been a difficult birth because his was a three-day birthday. Well, that's a, yeah, it happens. Maybe <laughs> yeah, the, I guess the, it does, yeah. doula practices in, in Iraq are a little differently than... For sure. Yeah, yeah, when, yeah. when you're Saddam, they let you have the three-day birthday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And, um, and so um, I went to the offices of UNSCOM, the UN Special Committee, that was trying to, um, um, to punish Iraq for Gulf War I. And uh, I talked with this, uh, this brigadier general, um, this Swedish guy, who's saying, hey, I've been there for years. We can't find a single weapon of mass destruction. So after September 11th, I thought, oh, why would they go after Iraq? And then suddenly you're reading in Newsweek, oh, after we go into Iraq, and you was, God, they're going to do it for nothing. And I remember talking to my friends saying, I don't believe there are weapons of mass destruction. And they'd all say, oh, come on, Bill. And then they were astounded. Mm. Um, but it was total bullshit. And so that was such a horrible war crime to start a war against Iraq because of September 11th, you know? Um, so 
I tried to imagine what it would be like to be a CIA official um, working on this. What would it be like? And, and I interviewed this, this high-ranking CIA guy, Paul Pilar, who was really nice. And I've read one of his books, too. And he said, basically, you have to do what the administration wants so that the administration will keep you in power. And you can try to say, no, um, you know, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that. And you just get overruled and you have to suck it up. And so I got really interested in foreign policy, going back to the Vietnam War. And it was the same stuff. Like there was this one um, faction in Angola that was very, very popular and sort of moderately leftist. So that was the one that would have won this big struggle. And so the CIA guy in charge said, listen, why don't we help them? And they said, no, the fact is, we want to pick an unpopular one, and we want to just create as much bloodshed as possible in Angola. We don't want to win. We want to bloody the Soviets. I, I couldn't believe it, you know, when I started reading this stuff. And then suddenly I figured, well, I want to figure out as much as I can about our foreign policy, you know, uh, and um, lots and lots of brutal, arrogant stupidities multiply repeated. And I don't say that we're necessarily worse than anyone else would have been with all that power, but mm. I'm certainly not very proud of how we got to September 11th and how we got to the, the Gulf War, you know. Even the first Gulf War, arguably, Saddam was suckered into it. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, I yeah. think it's pretty, yeah. yeah, I think you can make a strong argument yeah. for that. And really, I mean, sure, he was a hateful dictator, but wait a second, you know, um, the, Saddam, the, uh, the Shah of Iran, oh, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. But Saddam, okay, let's screw him over, over and over and over. Let's, let's tell him he's our ally against Iran, and then with Iran-Contra, let's sell them stuff. It's just unbelievable what they even thought would happen. It's so lame. Yeah, there's a there's a story in. I'm trying to think of any other CIA stuff that you've written that I've read. I think the in Europe Central airlift idols. Oh yeah, is a story that's yeah. like kind of. But that's yeah. Mark a little shot. No. Okay. Oh really? That's right. You think it would be hateful to be a royal? I think I would, I would hate the, uh, the assumption oh, yeah. that, that I'm arrogant and, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But also, what if you were arrogant? You might be. Yeah, maybe. As that, a royal. Well, then I it think, would be okay. I, I, I think the only noble way to go out as a royal, to, to, well, to go out, but to do it as a royal, is to take the, take the example of the, the Nepalese prince who went in and, and did the, I think, first and only royal mass shooting Oh, in that's history. right. He went that's in there, right. and I and I had a I had a Nepalese cab driver in San Francisco tell me that that real Nepalese people know that he was brainwashed by the Maoists. Oh, which, well, that was interesting. Who think, knows? Yeah, I always wondered what happened. It was such a such a bizarre and shocking story, and then the media never covered it. Yeah, because it's it's probably a little difficult to get a guy in yeah. there, especially after that. Have you ever met? You've met CIA 
people in your life then. Yes, yeah, I have. It's, um, yeah. Um, and um, a lot of them are, are, are quite nice, really, you know. And uh, I'm not against any nation having an intelligence service because other nations are going to have them. And I just wish, in fact, the CIA had been more effective to stop September 11th, you know. But um, uh, it's unfortunate that um, to do their jobs, they have to keep things secret. And then it's almost inevitable that power is going to corrupt. Well, I mean, you you had your own run-ins with intelligence agencies during when they, well, I guess you foia'd and found you had had, unbeknownst to you, run-ins with intelligence agencies. Yeah, it did, it did help me realize you know, why the FBI detained me for seven hours in Calexico and all that kind of crap. Yeah, But it's only, it's only time. Do you see where they're coming from with the Unabomber stuff? Well, um, some of what they said in the file was, was pretty lame, and some was possibly reasonable. You know, they they talked about um, my seven dreams, uh, second volume, Fathers and Crows. Mm-hmm. It's about Jesuits and Iroquois in the 1600s. And so they said that I was sympathetic to the Iroquois, which wasn't true. I was sympathetic to everybody. But because I was sympathetic to the Iroquois, that meant that I supported subversion. I thought, oh, how interesting, you know, because this all took place in Canada. There wasn't even a U.S. then, Mm -hmm. you know, or the fact that I traveled from a young age, that was suspicious. And and some of this stuff was just really, really nasty. Um, You know, when my friends were killed in Bosnia, I figured that what I needed to do um, was to get hold of their passports and photograph their bodies uh, before anything else happened in case there was some kind of inquest, you know. So in my, in my FBI file, it talks about how, um, you know, I was so happy to take ghoulish pictures of my friends' corpses, you know. So they always have their way of spinning it. And then, of course, someone who comes and reads it and thinks, oh, well, this Volman guy sounds like a creep. Mm. You know, we'll then add more to it in the same spirit. Yeah. And, yeah. I would think as an author, it must be, I don't know the best way to put this, but almost like a dysphoric experience to see your words used against you in a way. Yeah. Especially, you know, fiction, nonfiction, whatever it is. But as an author, to see that kind of then be used as if they're I yours. Mean, and, do you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, maybe it won't be too different from... Uh, seeing our words used against us with, uh, with AI. Mm. One of my friends said, oh, Bill, I just ran a few paragraphs of your prose oh, no. into the AI bot. Oh, shit. You want me to read it to you, Bill? I said, oh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't really use computers, huh? Well, um, I like word processors. Yeah. So I use that, but um, then um, if I need to send something, I'll do it by memory stick. You know, it's unbelievable to me the amount of time people waste, um, um, you know, like meaningless 
communication. Oh, oh, the train was supposed to arrive at 11.07, but oh, it's gonna be 11.17. Oh wait, sorry, no, I gotta send you another text. It's 11.09, I mean, really? And then meanwhile, every time they do it, they're surveilled. Oh, well, this person could really use like at least 13 female urinals. Let me try to market her, mm -hmm. you know, it's just garbage. Well, yeah. it's a slow creep, right? I mean, we get used to it over right. time. Um, I mean, what most astonishes me is the way they train people to go from their laptops to their iPads to their phones. So you watch people going peck, peck, peck with one finger when you could say it in a tenth the time <laughs> or, or you could type it on a computer, you know, in the quarter of the time. And yeah, it's, it's just so bizarre. Mm. Yeah, I mean, is that because you don't have a cell phone, right? Actually, in Lisa's last couple years, I got a burner phone so that uh, I could call her at noon in case she needed me. And then usually I'd call and she didn't pick up. And uh, I've actually kept it. I hardly ever use it, but uh, I like the fact that um, if I were stuck somewhere, I could call but no one could ever call me back. Yeah. Um, so um, when it runs out of minutes, I may get rid of it again because um, um, it was perfectly okay without it. Um, I went to Congo for uh, Men's Journal. This was like right around 2000. And they said, Bill, are you gonna get a cell phone? And I said, no, why should I? Well, in case we change the plan when you're halfway done, and I thought, that would be the worst for me, so no yeah. way. <laughs> no, thank you. You're like, don't let me know if we change the plan. That's right, yeah. So instead, I stuck to the plan and they killed the story. It was a glorious victory. <laughs> but I put it in rising up and rising down, so I didn't care. There you go. Well, actually, I wanted to I wanted to go back a little bit because you said, right, that because you saying rising up and rising down reminds me um, about, you said you put in a word count thing in your contract with right. with Viking. Right. I I don't know why I read this or someone told me, but that the word count for the CIA book is one million words. Well, it might be. Let's see. Um, um, when I turned it into Viking, I think it was around 3,000 pages, and so my editor wasn't too happy, so... I did what I could and I cut and pruned and pruned and cut. And so then I gave him a version that was 3,400 pages and he was not too happy. <laughs> yeah, you, I, there is a, I feel like there is, and maybe I'm off base here, but like, I feel like there is a certain sort of like defiance in you writing some of the longest books. I mean, if I, if I, you could tie together about three of your books and, and use it to kill almost any human being. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you know, um, have you three seen uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that is one of the greatest movies ever made. It is. Yeah. And I also think okay. that um, Fassbinder was sadistic. So he was, yeah. So like famously, uh, actually. Well, sure, yeah. I think he but really, I mean, literally was, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Not, but yeah, not just in his private life, but it, you know, he's sadistic to the mm. viewer. You know, it's just so slow for the first three or four hours, yeah. yeah. And then the epilogue is just ghastly, and then in between that, it's all brilliant. So I'd say that's 
sadistic. And I don't think I'm a sadist. I think um, I have a sincerely good intentions. Like originally, Seven Dreams was going to be like one maybe 500-page book, you know, with seven different chapters. And it's not my fault. I just think, well, now what about this? Oh, Bill, you can't possibly yeah. leave that out. And then how did it get that long? What am I going to do? I know. I'll print it in a smaller font and hope they don't notice. <laughs> but they notice. They always notice. Darn it. <laughs> so what, how are you going to get this book published now? Well, let's see. My um, Italian publisher and German publisher, they seem gung-ho. Uh -huh. And they say if they can get a third European publisher, then they might qualify for money from the EU Ministry of Culture. They uh, said yeah. it would only cost a million euros to, for the translation. So, that, I mean, that's nothing, as long mm. as I don't have to pay it. But you think the American, no, there's not an American publisher that... Well, let's see. It went from Viking to Knopf, and the guy Knopf said, you know, uh, that, you know, it might be my best work, and he could have published it five years ago, but he can't now. And so now it's at Grove, and uh, Grove's saying, well, I'm partway through it. It seems important, but I just don't know, you know, if I can mm. afford to print all of this crap. <laughs> Do you think the publishing industry has changed? Well, of course it has. Um, everything's changed. You know, it used to be that um, you could go to the pharmacy with a rash and ask the pharmacist to prescribe for you. Hmm. Now, the pharmacist is a know-nothing who says, oh, um, I'm not allowed to prescribe, but... Uh, it's on aisle 8A, uh, eight, eight, no, no, 7B, and that's as good as it gets. And that's the same ex you know, experience that you have going to a bank uh, where they don't really do much for you, and it's not their fault because they don't know. And more and more, it's like that um, with publishers, you know, where the, um, they want to uh, sell as many widgets as possible, and, uh, you know, Bill's widgets are kind of deformed. So <laughs> You do have some deformed widgets. It's, yeah. Well, it's interesting because you've written really short books, too. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Yeah. Horse for Gloria uh, is like 150 pages. I mean, I don't know, but it's, yeah, it's a thin like fucking that. book. Yeah. Rainbow Stories, it's a thin fucking book. And then you get to, and Europe Central's a big guy. And that was like, that's probably your most, is that your most famous book? Is it? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And I was such a good sport there because I left off the chronology at the end. I thought, well, why not? And it actually would have been nice for readers, but that's okay. Yeah. Once I in a while, I cave in. Yeah. <laughs> I had a question actually about Europe Central. I, I was um, reading something recently, and I was wondering if you came across this, that uh, about the Soviet like translation or performance of Hamlet that Shostakovich did. And the, the, what they did was, the Soviets in their translation, they they took all of the, I was telling the boys about this earlier, because I'm kind of like a little bit of a Hamlet person, but. He's a, he's a full Hamlet. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, of things to be a person about, that's not a hey, bad yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to, there. Here's the Saxo um, Grammaticus. Yes. But um, the Soviets, like what they did was they took all of the interior scenes they took them and then they made them all exterior scenes. Uh huh. And so they made the entire play to be kind of a drama, like a state drama. That would make sense. Yeah. That would that would uh, 
you know, reflect the Soviet aesthetic mm -hmm. that uh, the inner stuff um, is suspect and trivial. Mm. Um, did you ever see um, that 1966 Bundarchuk version of War and Peace? Mm -mm. No. That it's just as good as Berlin Alexanderplatz. They used the full resources of the Soviet state. Um, so they had aerial shots, they had casts of thousands digging trenches and simulated battlefields, and it's incredible. And in the meantime, it shows the, uh, the whole Soviet um, perspective very subtly, but in a wonderful way, like when Natasha is going to her, um, her debut ball, you know, it follows her up the stairs, and at every landing, you know, there's one of the servants standing there and just watching, and the servants are all in focus, and you see each one of their faces, you know, as Natasha goes beautifully and obliviously, you know, past the lower classes. It's really well done. Question. Oh well, my question. I always my my ultimate question. I have a few probably on on this tack. I guess. What's the biggest bird you've ever seen? The biggest bird, huh? Yeah. Mm, I guess an ostrich. Yeah. <laughs> That's Fuck. what I said. No. Wait. I'm not. We, yeah, this you need is, to explain because the Liz, listeners were not with us yesterday when we were talking about this. I well, Liz and I were discussing this question, and she said it's going to be an ostrich. You said it was going to be just like maybe an eagle or something. Well, most people say, I didn't say that he was going to say eagle. I said that most people say eagle. And I was like, but what about an ostrich? And you said ostrich didn't count because it's like a big chicken. What's so the bird? What's, what's, the, what's the biggest beflighted bird hmm. you've ever seen? Let's see. Um, um, you know, um, when I was writing the ice shirt, um, I went to uh, the island of Flate, where Eric the Red's homestead was. And you can still see the ruins of it right there. It's pretty cool. And there, uh, there were some very, very energetic bird colonies. There were like some terns and gulls and so forth. And I don't know which one was the biggest, but they sure seemed uh, huge because they were flying at me and threatening to like snip off my nose. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know. It was chick raising time, but they were they were big. They yeah. Were really big. Okay. That, that's a, that's a, I feel like that's an inventive. Are you, you know. a bird person? Do you like birds? No. I I mean I like birds. I like that they exist, but you can I couldn't identify a bird yeah. for you. I was attacked by a magpie once. Ooh. Uh, uh, did you ever read like the short story? The birds, it's so much better than the No, movie. I never have. Yeah, the, the short story is happening over the entire world. Oh, and it's, yeah. It's so awful. You know, the family is just like, they've nailed themselves into their house. And whenever the, uh, the tides turn, then the birds are motionless. So then they can run out and try to get something. But you're thinking, you know, this is not going to last too much longer. Not sustainable. Mm. Yeah, really awful. Um, are there, I mean, you've also, you've, 
famously kind of been like a war reporter, or at least traveled to, let's say, you have been a war reporter, but also traveled to um, some nasty destinations, or at least nasty at the time that you were there. Are there, are there things that like you've encountered or like, like sort of glimmers of a story that you've, you've seen but haven't been able to pursue, but like things that you, you can't explain that you've seen? Mm, what you mean? Or that uh, like sort of like that have a... That synchronicity like, or the supernatural or not something? Not even, not a supernatural, but like a synchronicity or like a, or like a, you've, you've encountered somebody where you're just like, there's something going on here, but like I, I don't have the uh, ability to investigate. Hmm. Hmm. I wouldn't say so with uh, with actual living people. Sometimes um, there are claims and stories and so forth yeah, that I've always wanted to um, investigate. Um, I have some this one um, you can call it propaganda magazine um, from the Serbs during the Yugoslav War called the media just happened to be there. And almost every page, they're laying out something that claims that, uh, you know, it was a libel against the Serbs and this is what actually happened. And I always wished that uh, I could throw a whole bunch of money Mm -hmm. at one of those and just follow it to the end and see if there was any merit in it. Um, It would be kind of fun to to do that with um, some of our claims, too, like... um, um, how dangerous, um, you know, was Cuba really during the Cuban Missile Crisis? All that stuff. It would be so fascinating to really get to the bottom of one of those stories. Yeah. Is there? A, what do you? What do you get a sense of your readership? Like who? Who reads you? Um. Well, um, <clears throat> it's probably over now. But what I used to really enjoy the most. Um, was the reading tours um, where um, after reading I could go out and drink with the readers and so forth. And so um, many of my readers are longtime readers and I would see the same ones at different books. And um, 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 it can be sort of a strange mix of, of old people and, and young people. Um, it's kind of hard to say, um, but um, I'm always uh, deep down a little surprised, you know, if I walk in somewhere and there are a whole bunch of people and I think, boy, I hate the sound of my own voice. I, I wish that I wasn't here, but afterward I can kick back and have some beers with folks and that's the best part. I keep just looking around at everything. There's yeah. so much. You have such a rich collect. I mean, oh, thanks. How long have you been putting stuff up on the walls? There, I feel like it's just there's so much on top of so much. Yeah. Well, I bought this place in 2004. Yeah. Um, my dad died in 2009. He was really good with his hands. He put up that shelf for me up there, and um, he could saw like through a really thick, like a four by four. And it looked like it had been cut by a machine, you know, because his, his father was a machinist. Mm. He did a bunch of stuff for me. But, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking for more real estate. I might figure out a way to start attaching paintings to the ceiling. <laughs>
Yeah, you're running yeah, out well, of space actually, a little bit. I mean, no, there there are, are paintings, all paintings on the ceiling. Yeah. Well, you've painted on the ceiling, which I suppose is a little different. Yeah, those were the old air conditioning registers, I thought. Instead of looking at that ugly sheetrock, I might as well do something. Mm. I, yeah, I mean, the first time I encountered anything you've written was my friend Eric, who I won't say his last name because he, he, well, he and I got in a lot of trouble together, but, uh, yeah. but he had open all night. Oh, the Ken Miller book. The Ken Miller yeah. book. Yeah. And we just, we liked this because I was like a punk kid in San Francisco. And like, you know, there were all these crazy photos of these not, these skinheads, uh, which were, I mean, I'm 34. So that was, you know, long before my time. But I knew who Mark Dagger was just because oh, yeah. of sort of like punk legends and stuff like that. And yeah. seeing those guys in that book. And there was all this text. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? And then later, I mean, you, you yourself, I mean, obviously you had a long partnership with Ken Miller, but like you've, put out a lot of photography books and when did that like sort of your transition from being a writer to like being like this multimedia kind of guy I think um, it was uh, you know when I enjoyed Bob Guccione's favor Mm -hmm. and um, suddenly um, I was writing for Spin and um, after um, after a couple of these assignments I thought you know, it's so interesting. I should really start taking pictures. So I'm glad that I, I took pictures in Mostar. The first time I went to Sarajevo, I didn't take a camera. And then um, once I started taking it, the magazines would always um, offer to, to pay me if, they, if I would give them the rights. And I decided, no, I'll never do that. And so often they wouldn't use my pictures. If they did, they'd pay very little for it, but because I did that, I was able to buy the studio. Um, I sold all the negatives through 2007 to Ohio State, and so um, they basically paid my mortgage every year for 10 years, and I had a 15-year mortgage, and I threw some money in, so I paid it off early. So uh, so don't ever give everyone the rights, even to your rec- sound recordings. You no, never know. no. That's right. Well, Unless, nobody wants these, but well, we wouldn't give them know. to anyways. I mean, if you sign them over to Liz, I think that's okay. <laughs> Liz, Liz <laughs> is in charge. Yeah, that sounds right. That, that kind of like um, the price of independence is tough, right? I mean, I think kind of yeah. maintaining that independence or try, especially now, I mean, we're talking about AI. We're talking about, you know, trying to stay away from even just having – a cell phone or whatever. I mean, the, there's, you know, it's it, tough. It gets harder and harder. Um, um, my uh, <clears throat> my medical provider insists that I do things with this stupid website thing called myhealth.com, so I just don't do it. Mm. And so um, sometimes... I don't get appointments, but I think, so what? What do I care? I mean, um, I've, I've lived long enough, and I just hate being told what to do. The worst thing about my cancer operation, you know, was not all the vomiting and the pain and so forth. But one morning, I was sound asleep, and this nurse came and stuck me in the arm, you know, to get a blood sample. And I woke up and said, what? And she said, sir. Do not touch me. I will uh, report you for inappropriate touching. And I'm saying, if you were sound asleep and I jabbed a needle into you, 
what would you do? You know, mm. and I just thought, I don't want to be around stuff like that. I'd rather, I'd rather die here in the studio. And uh, there's, uh, I mean, one of the nice things too about being near the end of my career and, and when I look back, you know, I used to not take certain risks on account of Lisa. And now that Lisa's gone, I don't really have to worry. You know, she's as safe as she'll ever be. And I can do whatever I want. Whatever happens to me now, it doesn't matter. And that's a really, really good feeling. Do you think you're at the end of your career? Very possibly. Um, <clears throat> I'm working on a couple little, you know, picky literary essays. There's something about um, Solzhenitsyn, Shalamov, and Tolstoy that's coming out in German. And then I've been working on a long essay about um, Melville versus H.P. Lovecraft. Having a great time, but, you know, um, if, I, if I die before anything happens, it doesn't matter, you know, because I've been able to do what I want to do. What did you want to do? Well, I wanted to express myself and see a lot of new things, try a lot of new things, and um, everything comes to an end, you know? So um, it feels like um, a lot of things are coming to an end for me, you know? Um, losing Lisa, losing Viking, and I really, I miss Lisa terribly, but otherwise, um, it's really not that bad. Um, there was a, a period, like, after I put a new roof on the studio, um, <clears throat> the IRS sent me a half a million dollar demand um, because um, one of my suppliers had not paid another supplier. So I, I went to my accountant's office and um, he put the phone on speed dial and speakerphone and the IRS guy was talking kind of like a gangster. Oh, yeah, listen, we know, yeah, we don't have anything against Volman, but look, he's the closest one that we can get to, so we're going to hit him up. You know, so my accountant got him to back off, and then they reinstated it, and they backed off. And I remember thinking that um, if, uh, if they had taken the studio away from me, um, it would be... Um, kind of a satisfying thing, you know, to, uh, to set it on fire and watch it burn as I walked away. Um, and uh, um, um, I try not to think that way, you know. I don't want to be a government hater, because what good does that do? But it's also nice to think that um, you don't have to be too distraught over whatever you lose. You know, you can be brave about it. 